The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Would you grab your Bible and go with me to 1 John? We're going to be in chapter 3 here in a second. And as we go there, most of us are just on the heels of Father's Day and getting to celebrate that to varying degrees. You know, Father's Day is actually something that's new to our nation that hasn't been around but maybe 40-ish years. The state of Washington really started it, and then President Woodrow Wilson inaugurated a national holiday declaring that now fathers would be honored just like mothers had been up to that point. But for Father's Day, it brought mixed emotions because what was taking place early on is that men felt that there was an attempt to, in some way, domesticate manliness. We will not be domesticated. Or it was probably more the latter, where what was taking place is men were confused because they were now buying the gifts that would be given to them. They they felt like this was just part of the commercial gimmick to get people to buy more stuff. That's probably an attestation to dad's cheapness as well, right? You don't have to amen to that one, wives. There's no, just silence. It'll be okay. Uh, You know, Father's Day, it comes with mixed emotions, and a lot of that's based off of your experience as a child. And what I mean by that is not necessarily your experience before you were 10 years old, but your experience as being the child of a father. For some of us, when we think of fathers, we think of difficulty. That If we were to just put it lightly that our fathers were not exactly what God wanted them to be nor what we wanted them to be. But then when others of us think of dads, we think of great dads. We think of good dads. Those memories are accompanied with thankfulness and with joy. Your experience in regard to your father, the way he fathered you, greatly shapes what it means to be a child. I want to just share a bit more of a personal story with you. So I have known my wife since we were in fourth grade. We were neighbors growing up. We're one of those couples. We've been married for 14 years, and we dated four years before that, high school sweethearts. Growing up, I always knew my sister-in-law. I mean, as as early as I can remember, I recall my sister-in-law. My wife has five sisters. My wife and her sister were both raised in the same house, primarily by their mom and their stepdad. My sister-in-law, however, looks nothing like my wife. You've met my wife. Some of you have met my wife. She has blonde hair. My sister-in-law has brown hair. My wife has very light, pale, fair skin, and my sister-in-law has a more olive-colored skin. It was about at their teenage years that they learned that they didn't share the same dad, but they shared the same mom. They didn't know that growing up. Neither of them consider each other any less of sisters. If you have a half-sister, a stepsister, you know what that's like, that you're sisters. That's all that it means. But each have known that that's why there's just some obvious differences with them. That's just things like complexion and body shape, jaw structure. All of that is going back to dads. 
Well, as my sister-in-law moved toward adulthood, one of the things that she really wanted to know is who is her father. She didn't know who he was. So she started using those blood banks, that DNA software. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there's actually forms of ancestry tracking to where you submit blood samples and they start to show you matches all over the place. Just similarities. Some of it, there's a, a great percentage. Some of it, there's just a slight percentage. And, and it's like a winnowing process to where you start to go through the matches and figure out who's part of your family. So my sister-in-law started that process. Well, what she found out is that she also had two other half-sisters. When she made contact with them, she found out that they too were looking for their dad. They didn't know who their father was. So she kept searching and she kept waiting. As more people submit their DNA, the, the database becomes more informative. It becomes more specific to be candid. So what takes place is that they can make a better suggestion and they did that. So as most of us do when we're getting to know someone, we go on their social media accounts, don't we? She did that. She went on Facebook and looked at pictures of the man who was potentially her dad. She hadn't reached out to him at that point. She sent a picture of him to everybody. We all got a text, this is potentially him. We've, she's been searching for upward of 20 years and she's preparing to make contact with the guy who is potentially her dad. Well, as soon as she sent that picture out, she didn't have to get a confirmation from him. She really didn't even have to hear back from him at that point, we could look at that picture and see this is your dad. Same skin tone, same hair color. It was so strange. Even same jaw structure. They looked just alike. So when she reached out to him, he learned about his daughter, my sister-in-law, for the first time. My sister-in-law is an amazing woman, to be honest with you. She's smart. She's hardworking. She's a great mom. She brings life into a room. All of this is just further developed and enhanced, just the really amazing character that she possesses. What's interesting, though, is that in her quest to find out who her dad was for all of these years, she's had other father figures, as I mentioned at the beginning. They were both raised by their stepdad. She's been part of a family. There's five sisters, including my wife. So it wasn't that she was lacking a father or wasn't that she was lacking a father figure, but the difference was that she didn't know who her dad was. You see, it's important to not only know that you're a child, it's important to know whose child you are. Did you catch that? It's important to not only know that you're a child, but it's important to know whose child you are. My sister-in-law illustrates the great defining importance of understanding our role as a child, not a biological child only, but a spiritual child. That's where we're going to turn our eye to. You know, John, in his first letter here, he clearly articulates what it means to be a child of God. He articulates who your dad is, according to Scripture, that John spends time teaching us not only the nature of what it means to be a child, but how being a child is informed by your dad, informed by your father. So grab your Bibles. 
Let's start, I just want to show you a few things as we jump into chapter 3. Well, first of all, we don't have John saying, hello, this is John, and I'm writing to this church when he writes this book. That we believe this to be one of the four letters that we have of John. We have his gospel, we have his three epistles, and we have Revelation. So as he's jumping into this, we're, we're now using some of what he's saying to discern who's writing who he's writing to, most likely a group of churches. He starts right off by reminding them of their father in verse five of chapter one, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He continues to address them as children. You see that in chapter two as he begins. And now as he moves to chapter two at the latter part, we see that he's warning them against those who would come in and deny that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the son of God. Again, another familial tie. He wants to emphasize the fact that you must believe Jesus is the son of God if you are in fact a child of God. So when he starts here in chapter three, verse one, it's in the context of affirming Jesus is the son of God, you being children of God at the end of chapter two, and then in verse one of chapter three, he says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Verse six, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We're gonna work through some of this passage and if you have your outline, I'd I'd like you to take a look at it. I'm gonna do my best to stick to your outline and direct our attention toward it as we keep going through. But before you set your Bibles back down, you need to see just a couple of more verses because as John has addressed the nature of being a child and how we see the manifest love of God poured out onto us in the process of becoming a child, John continues to teach us at the end of, or excuse me, the beginning of chapter four, verse seven, he says, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In our final verse, chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of him, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. 
we have this theme over and over that, that John is now articulating what it means to be a child of God. You know, you recognize that according to your notes, I've just tried to offer this simple little definition that when John talks about being a child of God, all he's saying is that a child of God denotes the source of your spiritual life, the relationship that you now have to God. You were born to be like your father. Let's, let's try and dissect some of that definition when we say, what is a child of God? Well, as a child of God, we recognize that that's not something that we've done. I'll explain more about that here in a moment. The source of our spiritual life is from our father, but it also describes not just the beginning of that relationship, but the continued existence, the relationship that we now have with our father, which defines the purpose, the purpose of that relationship. Why were you born? Why are you continuing in relationship with your father? Well, it's that you would be like your father. So at point number two, we were born into the family. I want you to imagine that you had the privilege of being a fly on the wall. It was the night whenever a, a religious leader came to Jesus. John and his gospel articulates it in chapter three. That a religious leader named Nicodemus comes and he knows that there's something special about Jesus. He knows that God's favor must be upon him in some way because of the works that he's doing. Nicodemus isn't completely sure what's taking place. As we watch this conversation unfold, we recognize that Nicodemus knows that in some way Jesus is favored, and then Jesus' response to Nicodemus is something that we would have been more familiar with than he would have. Jesus says, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Sitting there hearing Jesus tell that to Nicodemus, we, we sense the confusion. That really confuses Nicodemus. Can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time? That's the, that's the idea, like, is that what you're saying? As we hear the statement being born again, you, knew mo you know more about that than Nicodemus knew about that. You're more familiar with what it means to be born again. That's what we're getting at with this idea of being born into the family of God, that you have a spiritual birth, that you have become a child, that there is a place for a Christian that they can go back to and say, I was once not a child of God, but now I am. John says it in varying ways throughout this chapter. He says it in verse one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. He says it in verse two, beloved, we are God's children now. He says it in verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. He says it in verse seven, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He says it in chapter five, verse one, that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. However you're going to articulate that truth, whether you're saying child of God, whether you're saying born again, whether you're saying born into the family, born of God, 
we're saying the fact is the same, that we were born into the family of God. If you are a believer, then you were born into the family of God. That's what John's suggesting. This is what it means to be a child of God. But he also talks through how. How? How did that happen? I want you to grab your Bible and go back to John's gospel. Let's go to chapter one. Is this something that you did? Is this something that you've merited or you in some way were cunning and effective? You worked up enough uh, good deeds to be adopted into God's family. Look at verse 12 of John's gospel. This is chapter one. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When we talk about that process of you becoming a child of God, John makes it clear that that process is purely by the will of the Father. You weren't born of your own will. You were not born of the will of the flesh, but you were born of the will of man, excuse me, of God, not man. Let me describe something for you that I get to do on a regular basis. I love this part. So uh, Dr. Neuheiser said that I am involved in my church. I am, I get to be an elder and a pastor at my local church. And one of the favorite things I get to do is to do hospital visits. And I get to do it whenever there's a new baby that's born. Anyone ever had that experience? Like you get to go, it's just like cuddle time. Like, okay, Greg, back up off our baby. <laughs> and I, I get to actually go, there's been three just within the past month and a half, and, and we go, try and visit with the family, see how everybody's doing, how the healing process is going for mom. And then what I have the opportunity to do is to hold the baby, typically. Sometimes if it's a first child, I don't get to hold them. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the third child, they're like, hey, you want to take them for a little bit? <laughs> Bring them back about five. It's still a good. I'm holding the baby. I've never been in that moment where the baby's raised his fist in the air and said, I did that. <laughs> it's never happened. <laughs> I did that. I used mom over there. Mom, thanks. Those doctors, yeah, orchestrated all of that. Thank you, doc. You can go and set me back down now, Greg. Uh, sorry to be silly with you for a minute, but you, uh, we get it. Like, you get the fragility of that newborn baby, the dependency of that newborn baby, that that newborn baby is just along for the ride, and by the grace of God and their parents, they're being ministered to, they're giving life-sustaining nutrients, they're cared for. When we talk about your spiritual birth and the idea of being born by the will of the Father, John makes it clear that, that that's not something that we muscled up and that we just pulled it together and that we earned it, that we in some way deserved that, we orchestrated all of that, but that we were born by God's will into God's family. We were born by God's will into God's family. But at the beginning of chapter three, he says something really interesting. 
that that process is demonstrative of the love of God. So go back to 1 John with me if you're not there already. So you're born into the family by the will of the Father through the love of the Father. Go back to chapter 3. This is the way that verse 1 starts. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. That's exactly what it sounds like. In this context, John's making a shift away from abiding in God. You need to abide in him. You need to practice righteousness. And the reason we have a chapter division is because it seems like he's now offering a new thought. And here's the new thought. He's drawing attention to the love of God. Hopefully your translation says something like, look at or see what kind of love the Father has loved us because that's what John is wanting his reader or his listener to be drawn to. See what sort of love this is like. I'm convinced that you do this all the time. You drive in the car and you say, oh, look. The driver swerves and and then they look and then they look back. It happens all the time. Oh, look, look at that. And you're drawing admiration toward that thing. That's what John's doing. He's saying, look, I want you to look at this. Look at what's taking place here. Look at how the Father has displayed his love in bringing you into his family. One commentator said it this way. He said, the imperative here calls for direct attention and reflection upon the amazing love God has bestowed upon his children. John is astonished at the love of God and he's calling the reader or the hearer of this letter to also be astonished. Be amazed at the love of God that's displayed in the fact that he would call you his child. Be amazed at that. And so we are. You be amazed and so we are. Have you noticed something there? He includes himself in that. John includes himself in the declaration, and so we are. We are children of God. Sometimes when we think of that that adoptive process where the manifold love of God is put on display, we forget about the fact that we're sinners like we discussed this week. We forget about the fact that we were not cute and cuddly. We're imagining newborn baby. We forget about the Romans fives that say that it wasn't that we were cute and cuddly, but that we were actually wayward sinners. That we needed God to set his love on us because we would never set it on him. And in the middle of our waywardness, our rebellion against God, God demonstrates his love for us and sends his perfect son, so that we could become part of the family. When we feel the weight of our own sin, the magnification of God's love continues to grow and to grow and to grow. That he would bring us into his family continues to demonstrate over and over his great love, his great love. That's the point of the beginning of this verse. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Look in verse two. Beloved, we are God's children now, 
and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Imagine this with me, that the text says that you will be perfect like your father. John reminds his hearers that there will be a point when the child of God will be perfectly like their dad. You're not there yet. But we know that when he appears, we shall be perfect representations of dad. Now remember that this is how the Bible suggests change to take place. This isn't new to John. You see that that John actually uh, says something similar to that of Paul. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that it is by beholding God that the spirit of God transforms you from one level of glory to the next. It's important to see that the child here will be perfected to be like their dad, but that's not a result of their own doing. It's not that you in some way were the best child or the most obedient child. The way that that perfection comes is that we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. That's what transformation will be like. For the first time, we'll get to behold God the Father in all of his glory. And then you and I, as his child, will reflect him back perfectly. Look at this quote. You have it here in your notes. Spurgeon said this. He said, consider again, I pray you, what a dignity God hath conferred upon you, even upon you and making you his son. The tall archangel before the throne is not called God's son. He is one of the most favored of his servants, but not his child. I tell thee, thou poor brother in Christ, there is a dignity about thee that even angels may well envy. Thou and thy poverty art as a sparkling jewel in the darkness of the mine. Behold the love of God that he would call you his child. And so we are. That brings me to the next point here when we start to see what is it, what does that mean? The marks of a child. What does it mean that I'm a child? I was having coffee with my wife, this was about four weeks ago now. We were traveling through the UK, doing some teaching. Sitting down at a coffee shop, I had my Bible with me. We were reading together, enjoying some coffee. How spiritual of us, right? (laughs) We do that all the time, folks, just so you know. All right, only kidding, back on point. So a guy comes up, he sees we have our Bible open, and he says, oh, what are you guys reading? So we're reading scripture. Oh, do you mind if I ask you some questions? <laughs> my first response was like, I think I'm trying to enjoy some coffee with my wife, man. <laughs> Back up. All right, all right, filter that out. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I'd love to share the word with you. <laughs> Sit down, please. <laughs> he sits down and we just start talking through various questions about the truth of scripture, the accuracy of scripture. And one of the things that he said that was really a sticking point for us in our conversation. He said that we're all children of God. We're all children of God. Everyone. There is not a person who is outside of the family. 
And I'm, I'm already mulling over this lecture. I'm already mulling over this session that I was doing with you guys. So, of course, first John is there, and I'm ready. And I say, well, you know, the, that's the challenge. That's the challenge because Scripture doesn't talk that way. Scripture actually communicates that there are those who are not children of God. You can't read the last part of verse 9 and 10 and come away with the fact that we're all children of God. It says in verse 10, by this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Not everybody's a child of God. That's something that we have to wrestle with. That doesn't in some way make the children of God more elite. It doesn't in some way mean that they've been more obedient. It doesn't in some way mean that they've earned that place as being a child, but it's very clear in Scripture that not everyone is a child of God. And what John does is he offers clarifications on how do I know who is a child who is a true child of God and who is not. When John spoke of being a child, John suggested a few things on what a child looks like. The first thing that he suggests is that a child is unknown to the world. Verse two, beloved, we are God's children now. Excuse me, I skipped it. It's at the end of verse one. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. You recognize that being in the family of God comes with its own consequences. That being a child of God means that you're not recognized, you're not known to your former life, you're not known to the world. If you get the context just a little bit more, you see that this is directly on the heels of him saying in chapter two, verse 15 to 17, don't love the world. You can't love the world. Because those things that are in the world, they're not of the Father, but they're from the world. You cannot be known by the world, James would say in James chapter 4, and also be a friend of God. So whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, is what James says. John is just trying to suggest something. He's trying to suggest that being a child comes with its own consequence and that being a child of God may bring with it a consequence of being ostracized but recognize that and being ostracized temporarily you will be secure eternally. Let me show you this picture if I can. So uh, what I want to do is uh, there's a picture that I have of a group of kids that used to come by our church and they would sing they would come and give testimony. This group of students, they were from Tampa, Florida. It was called Hope Children's Home. And Hope Children's Home is an orphanage. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it. It's where those who are literally taken from their home have a place to go immediately. And sometimes it's foster care. Sometimes it's, it's uh, from family to this place. So the kids would come and they would just share their testimonies of what was going on. One student described how she became the mom. She don't know where mom went. That it was at 12 years old that she had to learn to be the mom of her siblings. Another student talked about how she realized that her mom would be passed out for days on drugs before she was taken away. Stories of how they would go on for days into weeks without electricity because the bills weren't being paid. I mean, as, as we heard these stories, it was heart-wrenching. It was heart-wrenching because what we knew is that 
this was just a fragment of what happens to children. This is just a, a tidbit as they're sharing with us their story. It was hard reaching because it happened to them. To hear how they had been marginalized, how they had no family, the family that they had was not capable to care for them if they in fact still had living family. And then what they would do at the end of their testimonies is they would sing this little song. I'll never forget it. I'm gonna try and not mess it up too badly for you guys. It it went something like this. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed by his spirit, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. For I'm a part of the family, the family of God. We're like, we're boohooing. We're, we're just melting there as we hear these kids sing of they have no earthly family. Gone. For whatever reason, abuse, orphan, taken by the state, they have nobody. And yet they're able to rejoice in the fact that they're part of the family of God. You recognize that those students understood something. They understood that there's a superiority to being in the family of God. That at times what takes place is we may experience temporal marginalization or ostracization from our families, yet we can know that we are eternally secure in the family of God if we are his child. What a joy to be able to sing with them that we're part of the family of God, even though that may bring, as John would say, being unknown in this present world. Look back at at John chapter three with me, because that's not all that he says. It's not only that a child will be unknown to the world. He says here in verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Then now skip down to verse eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Now go to verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. You see John's emphasis over and over and over. How do you know a child of God? A child of God does not make a practice of sin. Each of these places, you see John making reference to practice. 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 Your English translation is right by translating all of those as doing or practicing sin. But hopefully the theologian in you says, but wait, What about chapter one? Skip over to chapter one with me. What about chapter one? Verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. What about that, John? What are you saying? John's not suggesting that the child of God is perfect or without sin. Even at the beginning of chapter two, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John is not suggesting that a child of God will be completely sinless, but rather that no child will continue to be a practitioner of sin. Harbored, long-term, sin, engagement. Recognize with me that the practitioner of sin 
is not concurrent, is not a mark of being a child of God, but rather a practitioner of righteousness. That's what John's saying. A true child of God cannot, is not, will not be a long-term, unrepentant practitioner of sin. Okay, I'm not here to heap guilt upon you. Okay, I've sinned this morning already. That's not what I'm here to do. But I am here to say that what John is suggesting is that a child of God does not harbor unrepentant sin. A child of God will not practice long-term unrepentant sin in their life. It's not indicative of being in the family. That should be a sobering truth for us. So John is saying that that cannot take place because in chapter 3, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is antithetical to God. Sin is antithetical to a life of submission to God. That's why he says that the devil in verse 8, he's been sinning since the beginning, but yet Jesus Christ came to abolish sin. So we could say that, first of all, the child of God is unknown to the world. Second of all, that the child of God is not a practitioner of sin, but a practitioner of righteousness. The third mark of a child of God is that a child loves other siblings. A child loves other siblings. Look at verse 10, and then we're going to go to chapter 4. Verse 10 says, by this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who, do, who does not love his brother, excuse me, does not love his brother. Chapter four, verse seven, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Chapter five, verse one, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of him, and everyone who loves the Father Loves whoever has been born of him. There is an emphasis on loving your spiritual siblings. In fact, John makes it so clear, so as to say, that you cannot say that you are a child of God and not express love for your spiritual siblings. If a man sees his brother in need in chapter four, if he sees his brother in need, and he has goods and he withholds those goods from his brother, how does God's love abide in him? Well, the answer is it doesn't. How do you know? What's the mark of a child of God? It's that a child of God is loving their spiritual family. It's a common theme in all of John's books, his gospel included, that love, love for the brothers, love for the disciples is a mark of a true child of God and it is that love that demonstrates or evidences that you are part of the family. How do you know? Well, you have a great love for your spiritual family. That's how you know. All right, finally, look at chapter five. Here's what we've said so far, the marks of a true child of God. Verse one of chapter five, I've said unknown to the world, a child of God is unknown to the world. By being in the family of God, you become unknown to the world. You're not going to be a practitioner of sin, but a practitioner of righteousness. You'll demonstrate love for your spiritual siblings. 
And here we have chapter five, verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This is the final mark of a child of God that John offers here. You know what's important for us to clarify is that sometimes in English we see Christ as being Jesus' last name. Jesus Christ, Mr. Christ. That's not what John's saying. That's why you see an article here. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. That's part of why John's writing this book is that there are those who would deceive the listeners of this letter. They would deceive them that Jesus is not the son of God. He is not the anointed one. He is not the Messiah. John says if that's true, if you believe that, then you're an antichrist. Chapter two, you're an antichrist. Conversely, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God, that is a mark of being a true child of God. In fact, one of the reasons John is writing this letter is to demonstrate that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. That cannot be disputed and you say that you are part of the family. What's even more interesting is that in a very real sense, we become part of that family through the perfect work of the Son. We are made right with the Father through the work of Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You're welcomed into the family by faith in Jesus as the Christ, and what John argues is that is distinctive of being a child of God. You're unknown to the world. You're a practitioner of righteousness, not of sin. You have a love for your spiritual siblings, and you believe in Jesus as the Son of God. All right. How does John's teaching on being a child of God inform your identity as a child? How? What does that look like? Look with me in your notes. Well, first of all, your identity as a child is evidenced or confirmed, not ratified, in your obedience to your father. I'm gonna try and tease out some of the implications for our counseling here in a moment. It's evidenced in your obedience to your father. If you're not obedient to your father, then you have to evaluate, are you truly his child? There's... There's a shaping form, how I'm viewing myself. Am I looking like? Am I obedient to my father? Next point, I want you to turn to this passage with me. Go to Ephesians 5. The next point is this. Understanding your role as a child of God propels you to look like your heavenly father. Understanding your role as a child of God propels you to look like your heavenly father. We are not in some way suggesting that you will become God. Isaiah 45, God says, there's no one like me. No one like me. You will not become God. You will become like God. And understanding your role as your father's child propels you to be more like him. Ephesians 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. That's just on the cusp of one of biblical counseling's favorite verses. 
Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ has forgiven you, be imitators of God as his kids. Imitate him. What does he do? Well, look at the way that he forgave us through the work of Christ. Imitate that. Now walk in love. You recognize that scripture often makes a claim for imitating your father. You have this in your notes as well. This is Luke 6. Love your enemies, do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Did you catch that last part? Be merciful. Why? Your dad's merciful. Be like your dad. So in 1 John 4, 8, it, it shouldn't be a total surprise to us that John says, if you're not loving other people, you don't know God. You don't know him. You need to go get to know your dad, and when you know your dad is love, you won't hold back. When you know your dad is merciful, you'll be merciful. When you know who your father is, it informs your role as his child. Many times in scripture, we're called to behold who our dad is and then to imitate him, to be like him. Last one, and then we'll get to some counseling implications here. Knowing your identity as a child of God, according to John, propels you to love your spiritual family. It propels you to love your spiritual family. In fact, John will go on to say that it's an impossibility to withhold love from your spiritual siblings and say you're right with God. That, that can't work. It doesn't happen that way. It's a common theme through his gospels. Listen to the words of John 13, 35. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another, Jesus says. When you understand your role as God's child, you have a sincere love for the brothers and the sisters. They're part of the family. So let's tease out some counseling implications. That's how I'm hoping to finish my time with you guys. There's some counseling implications. So some of us are at different levels of, of what counseling looks like, that we're, we're just moving into this process of ministering to others. Maybe others who have found too much of their identity in something other than Christ or being adopted, or being a saint, or being a child of God. How do we help reorient them some of our counseling implications would be, first of all, does your counselee act like their heavenly father or not? <laughs> you know, like, ah, I want to be cautious with that. None of us are perfect. Before you think you're the perfect child, you have to go back and read that Jesus is the son of God, that it's his perfect account that makes us right with God the father. But does your child act like this, the child of God, your counselee, do they act like their dad? Not talk not say all the right things, but are they acting like him? If not, then maybe there's pause there that says, well, maybe, maybe you're not a child. If you're a practitioner of sin, we recognize that what takes place is I cannot say that I'm walking in darkness and walking in light. We see that at the beginning of the chapter, chapter one. Do they, do they act like their dad? The second thing what aspect of the father does your counselee need to understand? Think of just short five chapters that John has provided to us. 
Think of the rich, the dense theology that he's offered. He starts the book by saying, God is light, and in him is no darkness. Starts that way. Then he moves on to say, God is love. At the end of chapter two, he says that God is righteous. The beginning of chapter three, God is pure. John props up this big, accurate, robust vision of who the Father is. And he does that to inform life as a child. What attribute of God does your counselee need to hear? Do they need to hear of his holiness? And that how, if they say they, they walk in darkness and are yet right with the Father, that can't happen. God's holy. Do they need to learn of his love and how learning of the Father's love propels them to love their spiritual siblings? We'll encourage them. Go study the attribute of God, of his love. Go study his righteousness. Go study his purity. Go study his holiness. And in knowing your father is a righteous, holy, loving, pure father, you'll become like him in that process. Let's keep going. How can you help your counselee love their spiritual siblings? I'm convinced that homework is an essential part of the counseling process because what we do is we call people to obey scripture, to follow through on it. How are you going to assign homework? How are you going to prompt your counselee to demonstrate love for their spiritual siblings? What what area are they going to use their giftedness to edify and to build up others? What's that gonna look like? I'm convinced that even encouraging them back towards their local church and practicing in their local church, serving in their local church, using their gifts to bless the brothers and sisters in their local church is just another way of living out their identity as a child of God. Next one, how does your counselee need to grow in understanding that loneliness and isolation in the world should drive them to their spiritual family? Loneliness and isolation in the world should drive them to their spiritual family. Some of our counselees work in really dark places. Some of them are just, they're surrounded by darkness a majority of the time, and it's extraordinarily difficult. How does that isolation prompt them toward finding community and fellowship with other believers, with their family? Community and fellowship groups, Bible studies, they are all essential to your counselee expressing their identity as a child of God. My work is not where I'm finding my community. My hobbies are not where I'm finding my community. My community is found with the family of God. Two more. Your counselee should be bolstered in confidence toward the Father, not themselves. Your, your counselee should be bolstered in confidence toward the Father, not themselves. Recognize that John is never wanting you to turn inward. Think of the baby raising the fist in the air. Yeah, we did it. John's never saying that. He's saying, look at your God. You were born by his will. He loves you so much. He manifests that in you becoming his child. Look at his righteousness, his purity. Have confidence in who he is. Your identity as a child is bolstered in your father, not yourself. Finally, this is the point of my lecture, and hopefully this is something that you can take away. 
the point that John is getting at is that you were born into the family to be like your father. If that's the only thing that you take away from this lecture, I'm okay with that. You were born to be like your heavenly father. You were born into the family of God so that you would reflect your father. You would be an image bearer of him. That you would be a good child that represents him well on this earth. You're loving. You're holy. And all of that takes place through the power of his spirit and the work of the gospel in our lives. Let me finish. Growing up, my wife used to tease my sister-in-law that she was the milkman's daughter. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> that was before. Okay, that was before they knew. That was before they knew that they actually had separate fathers. You thought your sisters were mean. Savages. <laughs> Think with me. Of course, we recognize the importance of knowing our dad. My sister-in-law has been on a journey to find her dad and just this past year has had the privilege of getting to know him, seeing why she's like the way she is. She's had other father figures. I mentioned that, stepdads. Still none were her dad. There's a difference. I said that it's not about knowing you're a child. It's about knowing whose child you are. Our identity as a child of God is not dissimilar. You recognize that. Some of us, some of our counselees are searching for what is their heavenly father like. They need to know him. They need to know what he's like. They need to know that they can only be right with him through the work of the Son of God, Jesus. I would argue that that's the very fabric of our identity of, of being a child of God, is that we know we're a child. We know who our Father is, and we imitate him. If the only thing that you take away from this lecture is that we were born to be like our Father, I would be pleased. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray to our Father now, okay? Lord, your Spirit allows us to cry out, Abba. Our identity is not in our greatness as a child. We bring nothing to the table, really. We bring nothing. We, we, we bring things that are a detriment to your adoptive work in our life. And yet you and your manifold love adopt us. Help us, by the help of your spirit, the gospel, the transformative work of Jesus, to be like you on this earth, to be loving and righteous and pure, to have a sincere love for our brothers and sisters that we may confirm and live out the identity that you have given to us. But this is not something we can do in our own strength, so we ask that by the, the power of your spirit that you would give us grace to be successful in that. And we pray to you now, we ask of you now, and the access that we have through your son Jesus. Amen. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.